Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, this is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my delight of a co-host, Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today, buddy? Delightful. I knew it. I knew it. And guess what, Adam? Guess who's in the studio with us today? Elizabeth Woodson? No, I wish. Instead, Me we too. have wow. David Roark. <laughs> Thank David. you. I guess. David. I'm not Elizabeth. Yeah. Sorry to disappoint the Elizabeth fan club, uh, but happy to delight the David Roark fan club. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, producer of the show, David Roark. David, how you doing today, bud? I'm doing fairly well. Fairly well. Let me ask you, David. It's been 99 episodes of this show. Does it feel like, man, that really flew by? Or do you feel like, man, we have doing, we've been doing this show forever? It's flown by. I really do feel like it's flown by. Yeah, I, it doesn't feel like it's been going on for a long, long time. I don't know if you guys feel the opposite of that, but I'm surprised that we're almost to episode 100. I'm surprised too, but it is so much fun getting to do this with you guys. True. So on today's episode, we're going to talk through what do we wish we would have talked about this season, and we're also going to mention our favorite episodes from this last season as we conclude and head to the summer break. All right, Adam Hawkins, I want to start with you, buddy. If you got to look back over the last six months of Culture Matters, and you looked at everything we talked about and everything we didn't talk about, Yep. And you got to right now go back and redo it and just say, man, I really wish we would have had an opportunity to talk about this. Or maybe you have an idea that wouldn't make it to a full episode, maybe just a partial episode. It would have been great to bring up this and have a conversation about it. What do you think would be helpful to the listeners of Culture Matters that we could have talked about but didn't get a chance to yet? One thing that I have looked maybe over the last two years, I would say, that is just, I don't know, become a bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger part of our, our culture is the idea of public shaming. Um, I even think most recently there was this weird Twitter thing that happened um, where like somebody said, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the details, but like somebody got canceled and they were like a makeup person or something on Twitter and they had this internal fight and the, the whole Twitterverse blew up over it. And it's like, I don't, again, I don't know what the fight was about. I think it was over something really trivial, like this makeup person like promoted somebody else's product Mm. over his friend's product or mm. something. And it's like, but this, I, I'm, I don't know. The, the Basically, the result was this guy's like no longer on Twitter, right? Or whatever. Like his business is over with. And you would say unjustifiably? Unjustifi- like this is like the well, public just had an outrage over something small? Yeah, it was like what we got to do was get a window into somebody's personal conflict. And, you know, in this age of social media, in our age of, of uh, sort, of, sort of that desire to be everywhere, to everyone yeah. to make we can feed that sense that we are so self-important yeah uh what used to be local problems or whatever now become nationalized in a really strange way um and and or or what happens is um you somebody your worst moment right gets broadcast to everybody and yeah. then everyone else is sort of able to look in on it and the consequences are just so different than they used to be yeah um, and I think the amount of outrage over it is incongruent probably uh, sometimes with with what's actually happening. 
Yeah, you know what's an interesting aspect of that is now that you have forms of social media where you are friend or follower of a celebrity, and when they post something, you can comment and see what other people comment, yep. and it can really bolster kind of the internet muscle of of the shame community that yep. just wants to get um, just wants to get something negative out there about somebody, or every time they say something, wants to express their opinion about them. Yep. And so then you take what is uh, unfortunate for a celebrity, and you apply that to the same level of awareness of someone who is not a celebrity. Maybe somebody has very few followers, yep. but you hold them to a a public standard that they're not trying to meet. They don't know you. They're a stranger. But because of something they said that is just a lo- just as loud as anybody else, but maybe less followed than somebody else, you can destroy their life. Yeah. The stakes yeah, yeah. are super high. There's been a lot of great articles actually written about this and about how dangerous this public shaming culture is. So often we get misinformation in the news, but there's there's several stories of people who've lost their jobs yeah. uh, over a tweet that was taken out of context or or maybe wasn't a great tweet, but they their whole life's ruined now. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, how do you even come back from any of that? So, yeah. What's yeah. crazy to me, too, though, is that this, the there's not a huge difference um, from the c- Christian community on Twitter and things like that than there is sort of the rest of the world. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just don't see a huge distinction. This very same thing happens within Christian circles as well. Like, you see, like, someone disagrees with someone else, and their goal is to not just sort of get even get into a debate, which you can talk about how that's probably not all that helpful either. But, it, like, they will then retweet something, say something that's very shaming. Yep. And it, it, it's not even like, I want to have a discussion about this. It's like, no, I'm trying to point out that this person is wrong, this person's a heretic, this person's terrible, and everybody else should think that too. Like, we've lost any sense of, like, how scripture would have us interact with one another as brothers and sisters, even those who don't really know each other well. But it's like, if you have a problem with someone, you start with that person. Well, in the fight for the fight for clicks, I guess in this culture where it's like, if I get something that somebody else wants to see, that's better for my business means that anytime somebody who's not prominent becomes prominent. I think of like the college athlete who wins the championship. No one's ever heard of him before, but now what does the reporter do? They go dig deep into his Twitter and into his Instagram and see, did this guy ever like or post anything that was inappropriate. And so in the last couple of years, you see the shaming over like, hey, you posted a rap lyric when you're 14 that uses the N-word, you're a racist. And, and people go, well, I'm, I'm 30 now. I, I, I did something that I regret when I was younger. Are we, do we hold accountable for all time, anytime we've misspoken, said something we regret, and certainly before the Lord, I do believe that we are held accountable for everything we've said. There's not like an age where it's like, and now, and now yeah. what you say in middle school matters to the Lord. I don't believe there's a different uh, expectation of integrity, although maybe our expectations personally are lowered for somebody in their immaturity. But in the public shame culture that you're bringing up, it is like every time you may have evolved a position, your old position can still be held against you. Anytime you did something as a kid uh, that maybe somebody still has photographs of, or I think of Beto O'Rourke and his campaign and how like they they pull out these like, uh, hey, you were a hacker when you were a teenager and you hacked into this thing. And some of that stuff's really serious stuff that maybe you want to address, but I wonder some to some degree, can anybody ever be a politician again unless we're willing to accept the fact 
that when they were younger, they probably did something stupid that maybe they're not that way anymore? Well, that's that's part of it. I think that's part of the danger is saying so often the punishment doesn't fit the crime and there is no grace and there is no means of forgiveness that's offered either. Because it's a public conversation and you are making accusations against somebody you don't know and you'll never be able to talk to and they can't speak to anything personal. You know, it's like this weird online debate of which they're not a part, but yeah. they are the beneficiary of the shame and guilt and punishment. There's no way for forgiveness to take place. Mm. And so it's a once and for all judgment that's passed. It's it's a really, it's really dangerous. Yeah. yeah. To say that there's no grace is the best way to put it, especially when I see Christians kind of doing this. It's like, uh, it, it's all about justice. So there's no mercy. And it's like, as Christians, yeah. there's a diff- we have a sp- specific ethic, a distinct ethic that we're we both seek justice, but also we're, we're merciful, right? It's yeah. it, those things have to be held together. What I see is a lot of Christians just like everyone feels like they're a prophet. It's like, mm, <laughs> like yeah. okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna step into the prophetic here and call everybody out. And I'm like, I think people are doing that who have not, you know, don't have that that gifting, who are, are not called to do that, but they just see that as an opportunity to sort of like, you know what, I'm just gonna go on a streak here and just start calling people out. But it, there's just no sense of, of love, forgiveness, love of neighbor, those things. I think what your point about redemption is really interesting because I think both it, there's kind of both sides of a coin here. I think you have some people who have done something awful and have never actually walked through repentance, but because time has gone by and they're a celebrity, people are just willing to gloss over it and forget it as if it's gone past. Yeah. And then other people who are publicly shamed for something uh, that never get the chance because they are not in any position to do so and there's no public forum for the redemption to be redeemed. And I think uh, our culture has a varying spectrum on that. Like we have NFL players who like Michael Vick uh, killed dogs, wrestled dogs, had dog fighting. He gets a redemption story after prison and he gets to come back. Uh, Somebody that abused their wife or abused their girlfriend and it's uh, in public on camera, they're not coming back. And no, is there room for redemption for a person like that? And I'm not saying like career redemption, but maybe personal redemption in the public eye. And I think redemption is an interesting aspect of our culture that would say, man, there's some things that I'll never forgive somebody for. And there's other things that our public will gloss over because uh, enough time has gone by or we don't take it that seriously. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing, can I mention another thing about public shaming that we haven't hit on? Because I don't think people would think about this as public shaming, but I see it a lot, specifically on Instagram, Facebook, people sharing stories about their children. Mm. So what I think people, a lot, what I see a lot of parents doing, and it's not like, and I don't want to parent shame here because I'm I'm guilty of it as well. I share funny stories about my kids, which is what I'm getting at. But um, I think there's something to say about like to share a funny joke or to get some attention about uh, something that happened in your family. I see a lot of people share some very intimate (laughs) uh, stories about their kids that it starts to get into that like sort of ground of shaming. And I'm like, when you're child grows up and they and they're old enough to understand what this social media channel is and they see this are they going to feel loved by this or are they going to feel shamed by this yeah. and um there's just something to say about we need to be careful about that because yeah. this is a public platform and i get that you know sometimes people are trying to share those things with their friends but there's a way to do that where you don't have to share that with everybody else right. and and it protects your kids and loves your kids in a way that um you may not realize now because i don't think anyone's doing it out of ill intent or anything like that, but it's just something to maybe be aware of because it is public shaming. Yeah, I want to ask you about it real quick. Real quick, let me qualify something I said a minute ago. I did not want to compare Michael Vick with dogs to Ray Rice with his girlfriend. Battering women is very different than abusing animals. I believe those things are different. What I was talking about is comparing redemption stories. But Adam, uh, when it comes to public shaming, when it comes to public shaming, where would you lean on the scripture to say, man, this is where 
we need to really, as the as the Christian church, pivot away from something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd love for you guys to chime in on this as well. But one that, that's a really important point. And I think what what's disappointing, and, and look, we're all guilty of it, and we, we're learning this, this social media culture. It's happened fast, and we've all made these mistakes. But just to say, I think there's a sense in which... Um, so what I would say is the scripture tells us to be... Um, slow to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, to not be quick to anger. I'm thinking specifically of James 119. Uh, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And um, I think in, maybe implicit in some of that is the idea that um, um, we need to understand what's going on first before we open our mouths. But I also just think there's something really important about understanding that um, you need to be aware of your own limitedness and limitations. I think that's part of why that's in there yeah. is to say, um, like with, with, uh, I see some of these things that even if you agree with like, to bring up a contra- controversial one, like, uh, the preacher sneaker thing. Okay. Even if you agree with those guys, it's like preachers should not be wearing these sneakers. Like yeah. I've looked at it, half those guys, I don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they say. I don't know anything about it. Now, I might sit down and have a conversation with you guys about it. We might debate that a little bit and have conversations, but I'm not going to go on media and blast dudes. I don't know. I have no idea what they're pre... I'm not going to... I'm not going to partake in that kind of public shaming, which is exactly what that is. Yeah. We're publicly shaming somebody. And listen, I agree. I don't think preachers should be wearing $1,200 sneakers on stage. Right. I don't. I don't think they should be wearing Gucci and trying to be some brand and all that. I think that's a miss. I think that's a bad thing. But what I'm not, I don't know those guys. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know any of the nuances. I don't know any of the details. And so I'm going to be really, I'm not going to speak about it, except for right now, I guess. But I'm not going <laughs> to speak about it publicly online and join a chorus of debate about something I don't know anything about. Yeah. I see a picture. That's all I see. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot about snap judgments about people. Yeah. And uh, not even knowing the story, I think, is really important. And and recognizing in our own selves that we all have a line there. Yeah. Where we would go, it's okay for a guy to have sneakers that cost this much, and it's not okay for a guy to have this much. And we would also have a line that we create for pastors there where you go, is it okay for a member of that church to be wearing sneakers like that, but just not the pastor? And mm-hmm. if so, why? Why Why is he held to a different financial standard sure. than somebody else? And sure. anyway, you don't know those stories. I think of Proverbs 18, 17, that says, uh, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Yeah. And the reason I think of that verse is because so much of public shaming to me revolves around you get a snippet of somebody's life and you create a narrative where they're the villain and you know better, yep. and you don't take the time to really understand everything that's going on around it. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Well, thank you for bringing up public shaming. We could uh, maybe demonstrate this week by following Adam on Twitter at uh, and public shaming. Wait. What's your... Oh, never mind. Which might be a word of advice. Like, do you need a Twitter? I don't have Twitter. Do you need an Instagram? I don't have do you need a I don't Facebook. have a social media presence at all, really. Yeah. So I you mean, are immune to public shaming? No, I have a Facebook that's old and I don't keep up with it all. It's just there because I haven't taken the time to take it down. Do you have a but city profile? Do you have the city? I oh used to gosh. have a city profile. I don't know. <laughs> you only use your Facebook for Candy Crush? Fine. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Find Adam Hawkins at MySpace.com. Wasn't there like a farm thing where you'd like raise farm animals? <laughs> oh, sure. That's what I use it for. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> David, how about for you, buddy? When it comes to this last season of Culture Matters, what do you wish we could have covered? It's hard to think about how this would fit into like a specific episode, but something that I guess has been on my heart and mind, and maybe it's come up a few times, but I just wanted to talk about it briefly, 
And hopefully it doesn't make me sound too much like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino saying, get off my lawn, <laughs> like a grumpy old man on a soapbox or something. But um, this one's personal for me, like because I see it in my own life. I see myself doing it, and I see friends, community, people around me doing it. Um, so therefore, I think it's worth a conversation. But that's this just this conversation about Christian freedom. Okay. And what I think happens a lot, at least in my circle and circles that I see, is that a lot of us grow up in homes that, um, whether intentionally or not, felt legalistic. You know, there were a lot of rules, a lot of things that you did and didn't do um, in order to sort of earn love, earn salvation, um, or to, you know, a lot of it was out of self-righteousness. And I think that what I see now is a lot of us who have gotten a real good dose of the gospel to know, to understand that, you know, it's not our good works that save us. Uh, you know, it's, it's grace and faith alone. And, um, and that's a really, really good thing. And, and when you understand that you start to understand your freedom, the freedom that you have in Christ, which is what we call Christian freedom. Um, but then you just like sort of legalism is abused. I, there's this idea of Christian freedom that I think can be abused and I think that that's the tendency of a lot of younger people that I'm around. It's a tendency in my own life. And, you know, what I see as something that I have to be really careful about. And let me get into examples because I know that none of this is really landing with the topic of culture. But um, I see it specifically around TV shows and movies. Um, like content in media. Content in media um, where – it almost it just feels like there's no line, mm. um, no sense of distinction. Like, hey, because I'm a Christian, I don't watch this. Yeah, um, that feels old school. That feels legalistic, and I think it probably has a lot of that connotation to people for for probably good reason. You know, they yeah. grew up in homes that it didn't feel safe ever to watch anything, and the, <laughs> the line was drawn too sharply there. But um, I just see no. Um, no filter. Sure. And um, it, this even, you know, you could even talk about this with the issue of alcohol and tobacco, um, things like that too. Like I just, I see people just, they're so, uh, almost a naivety about it. Like, you know, not even stopping and thinking about like, is this good for me? And the scripture that I keep going back to is 1 Corinthians ten twenty three: All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things built up. Mm-hmm. And I think the the principle that I that I want to get at here when it comes to and, and a show I'll pick on, and I'm not saying that it's uh, wrong or right for Christians to watch this show, but it's at least a show that I hope people are thinking critically about whether or not they should watch it. Was Game of Thrones mm. because I I see a ton of Christians watching that show and really having like no issue with watching that show or not even think like not even talking about it critically like if you're going to say game of thrones is my favorite tv show i feel like as a christian you should at least preface that with like but i understand that not all people should probably watch it and it could be a stumbling block to some and i do have issues with this like there's got to be some kind of sense of nuance or there should just be a decision maybe i shouldn't watch this show but i think what first corinthians is getting at is um a question we should be asking about any sort of culture we're consuming whether we're talking about a food or a drink or a movie is, is this building me up or is this tearing me down? Is this sanctifying? Is this edifying? Because I don't believe that cultural goods or what do you want to call them? Cultural artifacts are morally neutral. I feel like they're either shaping us toward the image of Christ or towards something else. And so I don't know. Does that resonate at all with it you does. guys? Big time. I've had a lot of conversations with this about, 
uh, Game of Thrones in particular. But I think people not only will excuse it, they, they have their justifications. I think one of the interesting litmus tests for this kind of media, because I, I even have friends that are pastors that are like, hey, watching Game of Thrones is fine. But I tell you this, if I follow those pastors on Instagram or Facebook, I see them posting about books they're reading to their congregation. I never see those same people posting about the latest episode of Game of Thrones. Mm. And I'm like, why do you think it's okay for you to watch it if it wouldn't be okay for you to promote it to your people? Or if you think about what would it, if, if you justify things in private that wouldn't be okay for you to do in public when it comes to content media. Like if you guys walked by me in the mall and I was standing outside Victoria's Secret just staring at posters, wouldn't you be like, Adam, are you okay, man? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Yeah. But I would say, no, but it's fine. I don't need to close my eyes when those commercials come on. It's just, it's just a commercial it has no effect on me. I'm like, no, anything that I let in my eyes, my ears, my mouth has an effect on me. And I think it, it uh, the human soul is, is tender to sin and can be easily desensitized to things like sensuality and violence. And so when you have a show that, and I've never watched Game of Thrones, and part of the reason is, is because of my Christian convictions. And I've mentioned on the show before, my wife and I just very simply say, I'm not going to watch other people undress and I'm not going to watch other people have sex, whether it's on my computer or on my TV, or if it's a song about that. I just don't need that in my mind. I believe it affects me detrimentally in my desire to have one long-term monogamous faithful relationship with my wife. And I believe that's true for somebody that's single as much as it is for somebody who's married. But I think especially around violence, especially around uh, even ideas, uh, uh, but also sexuality, there are Christians that justify things under the art category or under the entertainment category and therefore make them a harmless category. And I, don't, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, what I hear you guys saying, if this is helpful, is what you're, what you're really saying is um, the question that should guide is not like legalism would be like, I don't watch this. Uh, uh, is that weird thing like we're going to ban the Simpsons in our house in the 90s, you know, yep. like which my family did for a long time and those kind of things. Why? Well, um, you know, it wasn't a question of it was it was more about appearances and it was maybe more about that first thing you said, which is like, uh, if I do this, I'm not saved kind of a thing. You know, it yeah. was the more conditional. And people wouldn't say that, but it's say, more it's it's underneath. It, it was a moral a moralism. It was a moralism, yeah. And what you got, it, there was a this. It was more about the morality of it all, and less about the um, is what I imbibe, is what I take in, is what I'm. Am I cultivating it in such a way that this either makes me grow into Christ likeness, yeah, or not? And I think that positive spins better because I think what happens is when we start saying like, "Well, I'm not going to watch Game of Thrones," or "I'm not going to watch this," I think it's so easy for people to go, "But you will do that." But you will read that book, yeah. but you will watch that thing. And so, yeah, okay, so you're not going to watch sexuality, but you'll watch the most violent thing in the world. Or it, Everyone can do that to everybody. Yeah. And and so that's the game that we're not saying we want to partake in that game. What we're saying is— Well, yeah, is, and that goes back to even public shaming. Like, exactly. some of that happens. Yeah, and so it's more—I think it's more what you guys are saying is more about— um, that question of am I going to take in things that stir my effect? Like I think a lot about, you know, I've heard John Piper say like he doesn't watch TV and he never drinks. He does not tell people don't ever drink and don't watch TV. He doesn't say that. He says for my heart and for what I know my weaknesses are, it is not a, I'm not going to participate in these things because they don't stir my affection for the Lord and they're not going to lead me towards something. But he's not sort of coming down in a sense, you know, or passing judgment on people who do watch TV. He's saying, for me, this is not working. See, and I think similar to what you're saying, I think my bigger concern is people that say, I want to follow Christ and keep my sins I love too. 
And so if you say like, I both want to walk in integrity mm-hmm. and also be able to indulge in things that, that, um, that kind of impair my integrity. Yes. And so I've, I've literally had this conversation with a teenage boy who told me, if you told me that following Christ meant I had to give up Game of Thrones, that would be an unreasonable choice. Yeah. And I was like, how, how can anything, how can you hold up anything, anything against Christ sure. and say, if Christ, if following Christ means I have to give up anything, fill in the box, that's, yep. good. that's unreasonable. That's really And good. especially when you're saying, it, this is a show about uh, dragons and kings. I've never watched it, but nudity and dragons is like, is that really worth your uh, pitting against your eternal soul? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you can't put anything in that box that like you could do that with even good things. If you put your family up against Jesus Christ, Jesus right. would say, choose Jesus. But then when you put things that are detrimental to the human soul or certainly a different worldview or certainly something that I would classify as pornography, something much broader than maybe the world classifies pornography. Now, I'd say, man, if you're putting pornography up against Christ and saying he's called me away from it, sure. how can I not follow him and still love things that are against him? Yeah, and I can even, you know, I think the rebuttal to a lot of this is like, but it's just entertainment. I just watch this stuff to be entertained. You're overthinking this. I've see, I see that. I hear that. Time and time again. And I just think it's a lie to think that not every single thing that we see, view, listen to, consume is not shaping us. That's just what stories and art and entertainment do. They shape us. Think about all the things that you grew up watching, the things you grew up reading. Those things have like affected you as a person today. And and you're you're sort of deceiving yourself if you try to say otherwise. These things, even if there's no like – sexual content or something like that. Like even the message of something is, is getting into sort of your way of thinking. It's all doing something. So I think I would kind of, the way I would conclude is that I feel like the question that most people ask in these situations is like, can I? And I think scripture, first Corinthians 10, 23 would be like, yeah, you can, but should you? That's good. And not even should I, but like, is it worth it? Which is what you were just getting at, Adam, is like, mm-hmm. is this worth it? Like for me to be sort of relevant in conversation about the latest TV show, like, is it worth it that like, maybe it might cause me to stumble or have one impure thought that I wouldn't have had otherwise? Yeah. Is it worth it? And the answer should be pretty simple for, for Christians. Yeah. But, and I get that it's difficult. Well, um, I, th- I think there's a desensitivity to to a lot of people that they don't understand. Like they, they see so much of it that maybe they don't understand the impact it has on them. But if they actually fasted from it, they would realize the impact that uh, inappropriate images, inappropriate language, these things, how their mind would change and how things would change if we resensitize ourselves to violence. And if you weren't like if you play a video game that's violent every day. And then you go, man, it's, it doesn't affect me at all. You don't even realize how it affects you. You do it every day. But if you fasted from it and went back to it, you'd recognize, oh, my goodness. Some, this is something that I had consumed on a regular basis. Without re- It's almost like you have to detox yeah. from the sin you expose yourself to. What's your topic, Adam Griffin? Well, thank you for asking, David Rourke. I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, I have for a while been bouncing around these ideas and fascinated by it. And I think we could probably do an episode on it at some point, maybe a little bit more narrow, but thinking about how life is different in the suburbs from the city, from rural America and how we talk a lot on the show about race and how the way you see the world is not the same way other people see the world based on uh, what ethnicity you are, or how you grew up or what you look like. And we talk a lot about gender too. We'll talk about like how the world is different for men and is different for women and maybe those kind of things. But we don't talk a lot about the geography that you grew up in and how maybe that impacts the culture that you're a part of. 
Uh, and I was thinking about it in particular this last week. I spent some time with some rural teenagers, some urban teenagers, and suburban teenagers all in the same environment. And just thinking about when we talk about issues of race, how different it is from the different environments they come from. And when we talk about issues of church and how churches get along with each other, depending on where they're coming from, how big the town is, and, and maybe even issues of family, it makes these differences. And there, I, in my mind, it connected pretty closely to the episode we did, which was a really great episode that unfortunately Adam was not in the room for. I think you were in Florida for this one uh, at the last minute. But Jen Wilkin and Paige Watkins joined us to talk about private school, yeah, public school. Private school, public school, and homeschool. And we talked about our tendency to kind of wear a badge of honor about the choices we've made. And I think the same bears true for people who are like, well, I live in the city. So I've decided to really sacrifice something, or I've, I've decided to really be in a cool place. I want to be near cool things. Or, hey, I live in the suburbs. This is a safe place. Who? Why wouldn't you want to live here? I've literally had somebody tell me, uh, somebody said to me once, who, who would want to raise their kids in the city? To which I said, I do. I, I love raising my kids in the city. I, I've also lived in the suburbs, and I loved the suburbs. Yep. I've lived in a fairly small town, but I've never lived in what you would call maybe rural America. I don't have empathy for what it's like to be in a town where your family is one of very few families there, and maybe the people your age is a very small number of people. I don't know what it's like, but I know that there are millions of people, and maybe a lot of our listeners, for whom that's their daily reality. Yeah. So I've been thinking about how would we apply what we talk about when it comes to culture, whether it's politics or whether it's uh, some kind of cultural issue like abortion or race, into different cultural worlds where in the suburbs you stereotypically are living in a physically safe environment that maybe is spiritually unsafe because of the wealth that you're exposed to and the lack of uh, exposure to maybe, uh, you know, the the ramifications of poverty and diversity socioeconomically or racially that you might experience there. And certainly the history of suburbs is, is pretty fraught with some segregation stuff too that we could talk about. And then the urban environment where there is maybe more diversity racially and socioeconomically, um, at least in, in Dallas, particularly where I live, there's, there's a sense of which maybe it's less safe physically, but maybe more hip and cool to live someplace like that or raise kids someplace like that. And like Man, I said, you got again, a high opinion of Dallas, dude. Hey, I, I really do happen to love Dallas. I'm kidding. I love Dallas, too. Uh, well, you ask somebody in Plano where they go for date night, and I bet they're probably going somewhere I'm in going Dallas. to Dallas, yeah. that's for sure. You lived in Dallas for a while. I did. I love Dallas. Dallas. And now you live in the suburbs. I do. Is there anything I'm talking about that like culturally is resonating with you as you went from a an urban environment, urban neighborhood, to more of a suburban environment, suburban neighborhood? And, past, and pastoring a, a people who are living in a suburban environment for the most part. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. super different. And before that, I lived in the Northeast, which I would say feels much more uh, urban or, or city than yeah. Dallas does. Dallas is super spread out. It's not a walkable town. It's You can be in Dallas County and live in a what feels like a suburb, meaning yeah. houses yeah. and houses and like houses. Pockets. It's pockets, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, downtown is uh, not a very vibrant downtown. It's getting more vibrant and all that. But I'm just saying, like, it's a super... Dallas, if you have somebody move from the Northeast who moves into Dallas and they live in, like, a, a you know a neighborhood with a bunch of houses, they're going to think they live in the suburbs. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So it's, I, I guess what I'm saying is I there is spectrum along the whole way, and you're right. There's different challenges that people face. There's different... Um, realities that people face, it feels different, etc. And so I, I've definitely walked through all of that. So the suburbs aren't my favorite place in the world for all the reasons that you've described, to be honest with you. Um, but I feel called to live there, and I pastor a church there, and I love the people there. Uh, and I feel like my responsibility is to, is to engage with the culture 
that I'm a part of right. um, and to try to love that city well and love the people well in it. Um, and, and yeah, so I, and I do think there is such a false, like you just said, there can be such a false sense of pride. You know, I, as I've moved to the suburbs, it, there is a ton of like, I could not raise my kids in Dallas and in the city and mm-hmm. the schools. And the, the, it doesn't mean there's not valid concerns, right. but to be prideful about it is, is, is strange. Yeah. I think yeah, yeah. one, one way to think about it too, is that, if you think about like those three categories, urban, suburban, and rural, that's a hard word for me, by the way, that last <laughs> one. Um, they all have their own share of beautiful stories, yeah. beautiful narratives about them, and they all have their- Shadow side. Their, yeah, their shadow side, their false narratives. And those are going to look different based on each context. But to try to think that one doesn't sort of have one of the other is just, is just a bad way of looking at it. So I think yeah. that if you're living in those environments- to be culturally engaged and relevant is to understand what are the the good things about this culture that I can affirm that line up with what is true, good, and beautiful about you know the Christian story. Yeah. And what are the things that are are bad about this culture? What are what are the false narratives that people are living in? You know, and for the suburbs, for me, you know, I think it's just so easy to fall into that sort of American dream mentality. You get a house, you live a comfortable life, you go to work all day, you come home, you don't see your neighbors very much. You just kind of come inside. I mean, that's probably true for all those, any of those locations. But I just think that like it's identifying what those things are and being critical about those. And as a Christian, trying to be faithful in that space. Um, Another thing too is like, I was mentioning this before the episode to you guys, but I saw someone tweet. I wish that I remember their name so that I could give them credit. But they were talking about like for pastors and leaders trying to sort of inform and educate their congregations about being culturally engaged, how like we need to think more about our local context. They're like you, if you're spending all of your time on issues that are headlines of the New Yorker, but like you look at your, (laughs) the area in which you're living and like nobody's talking about that. Nobody cares about that. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't ever talk about it because I think that can be helpful for perspective. But you need to think about what are the cultural challenges locally and what's happening in your backyard. That's the kind of work you need to be thinking about if you're in leadership at a church. Well, I think when it comes to Christian culture in particular about this, and I think that's a really good point. I think one of the things that I want to harp on and maybe get on a soapbox more on this show culturally is we do associate some things culturally. We have a spectrum of better that comes into this conversation where you think like, well, schools that are physically safer and involve more people with wealth with greater college opportunities are better. And you go, why, why are they better? Is that Christ would say, Hey, this school is better. Or is there something about that? If you were to put your kid into a school where they are physically safe and surrounded by wealth, is there a danger that you don't see to your Christian idea of what, how the world should operate? rate that you don't see. You put your kid in the suburban school district and say, well, because uh, the kids look like him and they make as much money as as his parents do, and because his education will lead to an Ivy League education, that must be a good school. And you go, well, what what are you valuing? And I think that's what I want to come to in that conversation at some point is just why did we decide, why did we decide more is better instead of enough was better? And why did we decide newer was better instead of uh, everlasting is better? And are there aspects of urban, rural, and suburban that confuse those things for us culturally, especially as it comes to raising a family, I guess, is where I'm at right now. But the scripture that comes to mind for me is about this is Hebrews 13, 14. I love this verse. It says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. 
that our love is for the city we're in, and that's great. And it's great to love the city we're in, but listen, the city that you live in, whether you're in your suburb or whether you badmouth the city or whether you're in the city and you badmouth the suburb or whether you all pick on the kid that comes from small town or from homeschool or whatever, our city is the city that is to come. Amen, Pastor of Citizens Church? Amen. Amen. All right, guys, real quick, let's wrap up and talk about what our favorite episodes of the season were. David, can we start with you? What was your favorite episode of the first half of 2019? I loved every episode oh, so man, much. David, especially really the ones did. you were on, Sam Alberry. Yeah, all the that ones one. that I was on. The other ones, they were okay. <laughs> but seriously, it, now, now that you say that, the one I'm mentioning, I think I was on all the episodes. I didn't mean to do that, but thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> I really liked the uh, the Theology of Culture series. We did four parts, uh, Creation, Fall, Redem- Redemption, Restoration. Elizabeth Woodson was on all of those episodes. Um, she I was felt, great. Yeah, I felt a burden to do those because it just felt like we needed to do a little deeper dive into a Theology of Culture and kind of go that route versus the the route we typically go, which is starting with the cultural thing and then applying scripture to it. But starting with scripture and applying that to culture, um, it, it, I think it was just really good. It was good for me to have to do some of that work, some of that research to to dig into some of those passages. And hopefully it was beneficial to, um, you know, our listeners. And anyway, I just think it was really helpful. And it was just great to have Elizabeth on the show. Like She's great. She doesn't know I'm going to say this, but I really hope we can find a way to get her on a lot of episodes next season as well. Well, somebody put that feedback. I don't remember where. Maybe it was on Facebook or on our iTunes reviews, which thank you for giving us iTunes reviews, those who like the show. Keep it up. But somebody said, I, I don't understand why they don't have Elizabeth Woodson on every episode. I'm like, yeah. Me either. Me, Me either. <laughs> mm. The pressure's on. <laughs> pressure's yep. on. Adam, how about you, buddy? What was your favorite episode of the season? There's a lot to choose from. The one I'll choose is, um, it's just personal, uh, and that was the David Brooks episode. Mm-hmm. Just honestly, more just being able to talk to to him and and talk with him was was really cool. It, it, that's it. That's really all it is. He's well, cool you know what guy. made an impression for me is he talked about how his first article for the New York Times led to like a hundred thousand negative emails, yeah. and I had never thought about what that would be like to navigate a job that was so public and so controversial that no matter what you did to get response, you would get negative response. And he he talked about how his love for enemies had to really grow, even though he wasn't walking with the Lord at the time. Yeah. I, for me, I think there was, when I talk about it personally too, a lot of the things he's been reading, the journey he's been on, yeah. that talks about practices and virtue and those kind of things, they're all very similar. And to there's this sense where you sort of, as you walk this journey to find allies in that journey, um, uh, it's it's bolstering and encouraging and those kind of things. So that's that was a lot of it for me, I think. Yeah. And I yeah. really like his column and his new book. Yeah. I thought that was super fun. Good choice. I choose, thanks for asking guys. My favorite episode of the season was, uh, God is God a foodie. Is that what we called it? Or God is a foodie. God is a foodie. God is a foodie. I think it was actually called God, the foodie. God, oh, the foodie. Dang it. You're right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but Adam Hawkins and I were joined by uh, Cassie Bryant, our dear friend and, and resident foodie. And we had a great interview, uh, with a author about her book about God and Margaret food. Feinberg, Margaret Feinberg. And man, I just I just enjoyed it. I I like when we do heavier episodes about heavier topics, and that's that's great. And I'm glad our show could and should do that. But I also really enjoy it when we get to do something more lighthearted and get to talk about something we love, which I thought we both nuanced it well with food culture is maybe a luxury culture and got to talk about how God has kind of fostered deliciousness. And as a she delight. was like really incredible. 
Yeah, for a Wasn't phone she, interview. It was amazing. She was so energetic and so personable. Yeah, that was that was up there for me. It was great. Yeah. I felt like I learned something, that's for sure. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and rate us. We are so insecure. We really need to know that you like us. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. <laughs> so insecure. Thanks for listening to this season. We will be back this fall. Bye.